0: You know, uh, as we were singing this morning, I was just overwhelmed by how grateful I am for this community. Um, first of all, guys up here, that was unbelievable. <laughs> I um, it, it was really something. But I, man, just uh, the people of this community uh, inspire me to want to be a better pastor. And I think it's the, what is of greatest value here. Yeah, we're going to look at God's word. We're going to sing. We're going to hear. But, but let's not forget that we're in this together for this morning. And so I'm going to have us do something we don't normally do this morning. I, I want you to stand to your feet, and I want you to look somebody in the eye and say good morning this morning. And remember, you're part of this community, and so are they. Maybe a fist bump if you're germaphobe. Just say good morning. All right, so now let me just see if I get you to be quiet, because it's my turn. Go ahead and have a seat. This is a special place. This is a special place. And uh, you are surrounded by special people. So great, now that we all know each other, let's look at God's Word, right? Today we are moving into Acts chapter 10, which in and of itself may not seem like that big of a deal, I mean there are 28 chapters in the book of acts and we're only on chapter 10 and we've been moving through it but there's something about chapter 10 that's kind of unique i've read this week that numerous theologians pastors authors like rc sproul if you know who he is brilliant man they actually claim that acts chapter 10 is the most important chapter in all of the book of acts and in some cases in the case of rc sproul He makes the claim that Acts chapter 10 is the most important text in all of the New Testament. That's a bold claim. So so as we come to Acts chapter 10, uh, I think we really ought to put our our listening ears on, right? our thinking caps on, because clearly something is going on in Acts chapter 10 is extremely important. And so whether you you believe what the theologians say or not, the reality is this acts chapter 10 as we're going to see is a turning point in god's mission to reach and save humanity it's a turning point that all of us in this room have either benefited from or will soon benefit from so if you have your phone with you you can open up to the Uversion app uh you can follow along with everything we're going to cover here go to more and events you'll find genesis church great research you can take notes in there you can do all sorts of things in the app itself and uh, if you have your Bible with you we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 starting in verse 1. so as you find your place on your phone or in your Bible let me just give a brief recap of where we've been in the story recently after Saul encounters Jesus in Acts chapter 9 and narrowly escaped the city of Damascus and then Jerusalem remember uh, he has been hunting Christians now he's been come he's become one and the Christians in Damascus and Jerusalem are a little you know they have a little trepidation about who Saul really is so he narrowly escapes Damascus and Jerusalem he goes to Arabia and he spends most believe almost a decade in Arabia studying and praying and learning about what God desires for his life and so while that's going on Luke then turns his attention again to Peter in Acts chapter 10. Now Peter wasn't just a follower of Jesus. Peter had been there since the very beginning. He was one of the first to be called by Jesus, to come and to follow him and to become his disciple. And now that Jesus has resurrected and gone to heaven, Peter, Peter is now the leader among leaders in the first church, especially in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Now, At the end of Acts 9, Luke relays the story of Peter leaving Jerusalem and going to two cities, Lydda and Joppa. East of Jerusalem, both of them were. They were towards the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, uh, Joppa is on the Mediterranean Sea. And as he goes to these two cities, we saw that he heals a paralyzed man, and he resurrects the life of a woman named Dorcas. Both of these miracles they reveal and begin to reveal just how powerful the name and the love of Jesus Christ really is. And as I said last week, it is his love that restores and revives people. Now, following the resurrection of Dorcas, Peter decides to stay in Joppa for a little while. And it's during this time in the city that we pick up the story in Acts chapter 10. Are you with me? Four people. All right, let's do it. The rest of you, catch up. Let's go. Verse 1, in Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as every, was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Caesarea is a city located also on the shores of the Mediterranean, about 50 miles north of Joppa, just up the coast. And it was a critically important city in the Roman Empire. In fact, in 6 AD, the Romans decided that it would be the capital, the Roman capital of Judea. It was also a place where major trade routes went through. Uh, goods entering and exiting Judea, almost all of them went through the city of Caesarea. And as is often the case in major important cities in the first century this meant that it was also extremely diverse and in need of very good security to make sure that the roman interest was protected in caesarea and then because of its importance they would only place people in charge the romans who they deeply trusted to oversee these critically important cities which brings us to cornelius cornelius is listed uh in in acts as a Roman officer some texts call him a Centurion who was captain of the Italian regiment. he was a Centurion because he was a he was actually over a hundred other men I mean Cornelius had prestige he had status he was well trusted in this area he was highly recruited he was highly trained and highly trusted among the Roman army And Cornelius happens to be a captain among its ranks, overseeing, overseeing 100 people in the city. So Cornelius is no like slouch, right? This is an important man in the city of Caesarea. He wasn't placed in Caesarea just to serve his time before he had to move on with life. He was highly regarded by the Romans and placed in, in a strategically important city in the empire. Now, in addition to Cornelius being the centurion captain, we're also told that he was a God-fearing man. In the first century, there were two kinds of Jewish believers. The first were those who were both ethnically and religiously Jewish. They were born into the Jewish heritage, the Jewish religion. Their genealogy was just predominantly, if not all, Jews right? And in the case of men, they were also circumcised at birth, something that separated them and a sign of the covenant that God had made with them. The other sort of Jewish person in the first century was those who were named God fearers. These were people like Cornelius, who weren't ethnically Jewish, they weren't born into it. But at some point in their life, they had decided, that they want to be a part of the Jewish religion. They had converted to Judaism from whatever they had been before. Now, men in this camp were also unlikely circumcised. You know, it's one thing to get circumcised as a baby when you don't remember things. It's another thing to get circumcised as a 40-year-old man, right? So they usually said, I'll take the Judaism, not the circumcision, right? But because of that, These God-fearers were like second-class citizens among the Jews in the first century. And this is where Cornelius is, Luke tells us, with his faith. Even though he's not able to fully enter into the temple and worship because of his Gentile, non-Jewish ethnicity, and because he's not circumcised, both of those things would limit him in his availability to enter into the temple and deeper into the courts of the temple. Despite all of that, he was considered this very faithful man. But the Jews in the first century, even though they kind of accepted a God-fearer like Cornelius, they also kept their distance because he was uncircumcised. He wasn't ethnically Jewish. And because of that, he was actually unclean among the Jews. And, And they wouldn't spend very much time with Gentiles right? Maybe in passing, maybe they'd have a conversation, but certainly they wouldn't have them in their house. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't declare friendship with them in any way, shape, or form. And yet, Luke Luke describes Cornelius, this God-fearer, in a really positive light. Even though the rest of the Jewish world may consider him unclean or a second-class citizen among them, Cornelius has gone all in with his faith. Luke says that Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man who was generous to the poor and who was committed to prayer. It's interesting, Cornelius is highly respected and honored among the Romans in the Roman Empire. And also, he's actually highly regarded among the Jewish Christian population in Caesarea. That was a very rare combination for anybody especially a centurion like Cornelius, which is why I think things get a little interesting for Cornelius. He's in a precarious spot with his faith and with his job. And then something happens in verse three. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he speaking of Cornelius had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. "'And the angel replied, "'Your prayers and gifts to the poor "'have been received by God as an offering. "'Now send some men to Joppa "'and summon a man named Simon Peter.' "'As soon as the angel was gone, "'Cornelius called two of his uh, household uh, servants.' and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, to go see him. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. So Cornelius has this vision. The angel comes. He tells him, go to Joppa. See this guy, Simon Peter. Send some people to go do that. Now, this has happened numerous times in the Old and the New Testament. This is not a regular thing. It 's actually very irregular, but it does happen where one person is able to have this vision gain this message from a messenger of some kind from God right we 're about to go into the Christmas season Mary is, is receives this message from the angel Gabriel that she 's going to give birth to a son, and his name's going to be Jesus he 's going to be the son of God, the Messiah. So it happens occasionally and because of what we know of Cornelius it 's likely that when the angel spoke to him, he was praying. Three o'clock in the afternoon was a typical time for Jews to pray. In fact, still today, Jews pray morning, afternoon, or morning, noon, and in the afternoon, usually around 9, noon, and 3 PM. It's a dedicated time to spend In prayer. And so Cornelius, as he's praying at 3 o'clock, has this vision of this angel. This angel gives him this precarious message to go find this random person, at least by his standards, in Joppa. It would have been a massive surprise to Cornelius what was going on, which I think is why Luke says he was terrified. Now, I have never had a vision from an angel, but I'm guessing if it happened, I too would be terrified. That That would be a sight to behold. So surprised is Cornelius that Luke records he's terrified. And yet he responds to the angel, right? And he's told that God looks on him with favor because of his faith and his prayers and his generosity. And so he tells them, send some people to Joppa and meet Simon Peter. And Cornelius does what anybody should do after seeing or hearing from an angel. If any of you ever hear or see from an angel, do what Cornelius did. Do what they say, okay? Just do what they say. Trust it. He does what he's told. He sends men to Joppa. Luke then cuts back to Peter. So he spent some time talking about Cornelius. Now Luke talks about what's going on. At the same time, this is all happening with Peter. Verse 9. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town... Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, right? Again, this is when he would have prayed, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Now, similar to Cornelius, Peter is spending some time in prayer on the roof of the building he's at. It's around the noon hour. And like Cornelius, Peter is given this message. He's given this vision. And it's, it's not nearly as clear cut as what Cornelius has received. The vision is of a sheet that's covered in all of the animals and reptiles and birds. We can only imagine all of them, or at least most of them, are on this sheet. And then God pairs this vision of this sheet that's hanging down with this message, verse 13, then a voice Said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. The sheet obviously displayed, again, various animals, some of which we can only imagine were considered clean by Jewish standards, and some that were considered unclean by Old Testament law. Now, in Leviticus chapter 11, way back in the Old Testament, God gives the people of Judah, the Jewish people, dietary standards to follow as a way of setting them apart from the rest of the world. They exist to become this example of the holiness of God, God decided, I want to create a holy nation that worships me, that's set apart like all of the other nations, that they would be a light to the world, that they would see who I am. And so one of the laws that he creates in Leviticus chapter 11 is he says, I want you to eat differently than everybody else. There are going to be some things you can eat and there are going to be some things you should never eat, even come into contact with. The law which is found primarily in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it gave this, the Jewish people a guide as to how they were to be His holy nation. And this was one of the laws. These are the foods that I want you to eat. To this day, devout Jews still hold to many of the dietary laws that exist in Leviticus. They only eat what we now call kosher foods. I have a friend on my hockey team who's a devout Jew. And he only eats kosher foods. Now, it's important to note that the law, like Leviticus chapter 11. I know we're going deep here, so stick with me. It's important to note that the law, like that in Leviticus chapter 11, wasn't just about a bunch of rules for these Jews to follow. Laws like Leviticus chapter 11 were more than rules for the Jews. It was their identity. Following laws like the dietary laws, not only kept them clean, but it also marked them as significantly Jewish within a multicultural pluralistic society. Disobeying such laws would not only make them unclean by temple standards, but it also would tarnish their identity. The the community that they were a part of would look down upon them even to the point where if repentance wasn't seen, they would remove them from the community, not because they didn't follow the rules, but because because of their disobedience, they were no longer Jewish, which is why Peter responds the way he does when God says, kill and eat them. Here's Peter's response. No. No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. No, there's no way. You, you wrote Leviticus 11. You told us this is what we're supposed to do. I'm the 30, 25-year-old you know, man. I've never eaten any of the things that you just displayed. How can you possibly ask me? To do this, look, this is a bold response. And we know about Peter in the New Testament. He's a pretty bold guy. But he is really adamant here. He said, no, no way. I am not going to do it. I've never eaten prohibited unclean foods before. And I'm certainly not going to do it now. I don't even care if it is God that's asking me. It just isn't right. Right? Remember, this isn't just a rule that Peter is called to follow. This is part of his identity. What is being asked of him is life-changing for him. It means that he must let go of something that has made him uniquely set apart from the rest of the world. To eat unclean foods would mean to be shamed by the Jewish community. What Peter doesn't realize though, We have the benefit of 2,000 years separated from this moment. What Peter doesn't realize, though, is that in this moment, God is declaring something new is happening, something that is the first step in making the good news available to all people. Verse 15, Peter says, no, there's no way. I'm not going to do it. Verse 15, the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And with that, God repeals the Jewish dietary laws. You can eat bacon now. Aren't you excited? <laughs> There's something m- much deeper going on here, right? I mean, he's saying to Peter, hey, look, go have some bacon. That's, it's okay now. But there's something so much more meaningful and deeper than just him repealing some laws. What's interesting is that Peter is obviously not buying it. Because look at what happens in verse 16. It says the same vision was repeated three times. Peter's like, you're not hearing me, God. I am not doing it. I am not going to do it. And God shows him the vision again. And he says, don't call something unclean that I've decided is clean. And he's like, I don't think I believe you. And he shows him again. And then he shows him again. We never have that problem. We always get it first, right away, right? Mm, yeah. Peter needs to hear this again and again and again. Why? Because God is in the process of changing who Peter is. It was always God's intent for all people to have access to him. There is a massive shift in the identity of Peter as this happens, and we'll see what happens when Cornelius' men meet Peter in Joppa next week. But Today, I just want us to reflect on what is happening in these first 16 verses, because God is doing something in this moment that changes the landscape of humanity forever. You see, up to this point, the good news, or so it was believed among most of the people that were Christians, was confined to those who were Jewish. But it was always God's intent. It was always Jesus' intent for the good news, the gospel, salvation, to spread beyond the borders of Judaism and into every corner of the world. The apostle Paul caught this vision maybe better than anyone else in the New Testament. And he writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. I want you to notice that's an identity statement paul i'm not ashamed of this good news of christ it is the power of god at work saving everyone who believes the jew first and also the gentile now i don't know everybody in this room and so it's possible that you may be of jewish descent here but probably the majority of us if not all of us would be placed in the category of gentile in the scriptures gentile being the generic term for those who are not jewish and because of that this move by god in acts chapter 10 should cause incredible relief and celebration in us because in it god is saying the law it doesn't keep people clean. It doesn't redeem people. It doesn't forgive people. It's only Jesus that a person is made clean, that a person is redeemed, that a person is forgiven, no matter who they are, Jew or Gentile, male or female. Yeah, it's just a sheet with a bunch of animals on it, but God is declaring cleanliness and redemption and forgiveness. Guess what? It is open season for all people now where once the law acted as this barrier to separate the Jewish people from the rest of the world, God is declaring in this moment there is no barrier anymore. Where once the Gentile population was seen as unclean and irredeemable, because of the good news, all people, regardless of their station in life, now have access to God through Jesus. Even if you eat bacon, God receives you as one of his children. Here's what happens in short. God lowers the sheet and he tells Peter, kill and eat. But he's saying something underneath there that, that is so much bigger than about eating and dining in animals. He's saying, listen, the barriers are broken. Access has been granted. I mean, this is the good news of Jesus. The the barriers are broken. Access has been granted. I want to read to you what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. And I really want you to listen to these words. Because Paul is explaining in about five or six verses exactly what God is telling Peter in Acts chapter 10. He's speaking to us. maybe the most important but in the all the you know the new testament but now you have been united with christ jesus once you were far away from god but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of christ for christ himself has brought peace to us he united jews and gentiles into one people with his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And he did this, listen to this, by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. The vision that Peter has is not a food problem it's not a, it's not a it's not about food it, the food is what it represents but it's about identity that, that that you're a new person now peter and that because jesus christ was the ultimate sacrifice this can no longer just be for the jewish people this is for all people all time in all places the blood of christ brings us together as one jew and Gentile. Peter, and we'll see Cornelius. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the barrier has been destroyed between us and God and between us and ourselves. I had you greet each other this morning because I want you to know, guess what? There are no barriers in this room. We are one, Paul says, in Jesus Christ. We might be different and diverse and vote different and look different and all that, but we are one. Jesus is establishing a community that is without barriers. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, shortly after he wrote what I just read, he says, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Jew or Gentile, male or female, poor or rich, we're all welcome now. I want to say it again. The barrier, the barrier is broken. Access has been granted. Now, it's unfortunate because I think we can we we love that message, but I think we also have a hard time really believing that it's true. In fact, I think there's there's a barrier in our lives that is the biggest lie Satan tries to get us to believe. And it becomes this enormous barrier to God and the access that can only be granted by him. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, we read this, and I read it, and I think this is seems too good to be true sometimes. Right? Like, like God just he came for me. Have you not seen who I am? What I've done? Do you not know what my past looks like? no barriers, full access, it it seems a bit much at times. And that thinking comes because underneath is this kind of thinking is a barrier that dominates us, a barrier that Jesus destroyed on the cross, but that keeps being placed in our lives. It's the same barrier that Peter had to contend with in Acts chapter 10, because the repealing of the dietary laws in Leviticus chapter 11 Again, it wasn't about food. It was about identity. And there is one thing that can keep us from a new identity in Jesus. Even Peter needs the vision to, to be sent to him three times in order to get past this barrier that keeps people from God. I'm going to spell it for you. Here's the barrier that keeps us from God more than anything else. S H A M e shape Peter says no no I'm am, there I I'm am, no I am not going to do this god And why does he say no Because he's created this barrier this barrier has been created that's saying if you do that You're unclean. Shame on you. How dare you relinquish your Jewish identity and go eat with Gentiles, or eat even in the same way that Gentiles do. Remember, Judaism is not just a religion. It's this identity. And in an honor and shame culture, going against what was believed, what was taught, mean a person was separated from God and the community. In other words, I think the reason that Peter is constantly saying no is he's thinking that has to be too good to be true. And if I do that, then, then I'm just going to live in shame the rest of my life. And in the same way, we carry shame around with us. And do, in doing so, we are building up a barrier that Jesus came to destroy. Your shame will keep you from truly experiencing the abundant life Jesus taught. It just will. I believe it is the barrier that God wants to break down and destroy in your life. On the cross, it says in the book of Hebrews, it says that he died and he broke the power of sin and shame, that that barrier was broken look at what it says in hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. it says this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses speaking of jesus for he faced all the same testings we do yet he did not sin and what does the author say so let us come boldly to the throne of the gracious god there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most listen the gate has been opened the barriers are broken. Your shame, for whatever it might be, maybe it's your past. Maybe it's your, your childhood. Maybe, maybe it's things that you've just have been out of your control that you live with every day. And by the way, let's just distinguish between guilt and shame for a second. Guilt is actually a good thing in our life. Guilt will tell us, you, you did something bad, and you, you should not do that again. You know what shame says to us, though? You are bad. Shame says, "Oh man, you messed up there. You failed." Do you know what? Or says that? Do you know what shame says to us? You're a failure. It becomes hardwired into our identity, just like it was hardwired into Peter when God shows him this sheet. God is not after the habits. Of Peter, God is after eliminating the shame that Peter has been holding on to for so long. And he's after ours as well. In love, Jesus came and lived a life that we couldn't live, sinless in every way, Hebrews 4 says. And he came so that we sinners could experience the joy and peace of life beyond the barrier of sin and shame. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, there are no more barriers it does not matter what you've done it doesn't matter who you've become it doesn't matter what the future holds Jesus Christ came for you to remove all of the barriers including your sin including your shame so that you might experience abundant life in him last week I talked about how God has shown me the depth of his love personally And part of my restoration, part of my revival in life during the last year has been recognizing there is a massive barrier that I have created between God and me, and it is the barrier of shame. But Acts chapter 10 has reminded me that the barriers have been removed, Jew, Gentile, male, female, poor, rich, shamed, not, honored. Acts chapter 10 has taught me that that barrier of shame has been broken. And despite what I have done, who I've become, God loves me and is pursuing me. And he's broken down the barriers and he's given me full access to him. And if it's true for me, guess what? It's got to be true for you. The barriers are broken. Access has been granted. Jesus wants to come into your life and tear apart the shame that you're holding on to. He wants to remove this thing that has marked you as unworthy, as unlovable, as a failure, whatever it might be, that you might experience freedom in him. And the same way he did for Peter in Acts chapter 10 in the city of Joppa, he is saying, listen, the old is gone and the new has come. Take it, receive it, access has been granted. So if you're here today and you're in a place where God seems distant, or you feel like there's this barrier that's broken up, Between you and him, I want you to let Acts chapter 10 be a salve to your wound. Because those barriers have been broken, the gate has been swung open, access is granted, and Jesus, in his love, is inviting you to take full advantage of his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Let's pray. God, there's just so much to say. This is so much to take away from this 16 verse passage. But but I just want to first say thank you, thank you that you opened the gate wide to all of us regardless of who we are, regardless of what has gone on, regardless of our past, you have swung open the gate and welcomed us home. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, the barriers are broken and access has been granted. But Lord, like Peter, as he said, no, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. We still carry with us shame, God. A barrier that keeps us from experiencing you in your fullness, a barrier that keeps us from one another, from loving one another well, and so I pray in this moment right now by your Holy Spirit that you would break down the shame in our lives, that you would point it out and you would tell us that barrier needs to go and that barrier needs to go and that barrier needs to go and, to go, and it's gonna go because I eradicated it, because I destroyed it through my son, Jesus Christ. And God, that I, we would receive a new identity this morning, not one built on shame, but one built on honor and hope. One built on love and grace and mercy. Thank you for inviting us into your family. Thank you that you continue to break through into our lives and into this world. And we pray, God, that you wouldn't stop that you will not stop your movement in this world, that you'll continue to pursue us and you continue to break down the shame in our lives, that we would experience your fullness, that we, even in this community here at Genesis on Thunderbird and 32nd Street would be a light to the world, that there is a God who loves each and every person. Thank you most of all for Jesus, for his resurrection, for his death, is calling us into his family. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.